by looking at the testimony to goodness in the scriptures. The Bible testifies God is good. In the psalm that was just read to us, it is repeated there in verse 5, the Lord is good. And we considered how it is so that God is goodness itself. He defines what goodness is within his own being. Goodness is not something that God chooses to be. It is that which he is. It is of his essence. He can no sooner fail to be good than he can change any other aspect of his essential being. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 119 uses these words in verse 68. You are good and you do good. All that is in God is good. All goodness is found in God. There is no goodness apart from God. All goodness is defined by God and exists only because God is. We were invited just an hour ago to taste and see that the Lord is good. And as we were invited to his table, we did just that. And then secondly, we considered a definition of goodness in our theology. What is goodness? It is that moral perfection of God that leads him to manifest covenant kindness, faithfulness, and benevolence towards his creatures without ever compromising his holiness or his purity. We looked at many scriptures that spoke to that this morning. Let's just briefly look at another one. One of my favorite Psalms, 103, has this wonderful statement concerning God from verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and it remembers its place no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Behold the goodness of God. What Stephen Charnock referred to as the captain attribute. Wherever we see God showing mercy, it is because he is good. If we see him being gracious, it is because he is good. If we see him showing long-suffering, it is because he is good. If we see him withholding judgment, it is because he is good. All these blessings that come to us, all this benevolence and kindness of God is the product of his goodness. And then thirdly, we began to look at our third heading, the victory of goodness in Christ. When sin came into the world, 
The goodness that is in God was challenged. If goodness is the disposition of God to be benevolent, bountiful, generous, kind, cordial, merciful, forgiving, gentle and hospitable towards his creatures, then the cosmic rebellion of humanity against God put this goodness to the test. We saw from Genesis, as Satan comes to Eve, there is goodness doubted, then goodness denied, then goodness defied. Sin is born, and from sin comes misery. Would this put pain to God's goodness? Would this conquer God's goodness? Satan is a liar and a murderer and an opponent of goodness. No goodness comes from him. He promises freedom, but he brings us bondage. He promises us fullness, but he empties us of all that is good. He promises us that which is sweet, and he gives us that which is bitter. All bondage and wickedness and bitterness and moral evil comes from Satan. Hatefulness, miserliness, unkindness, harshness, cruelty, severity, mercilessness, and selfishness are the products of Satan's malice. Would it overcome the goodness of God? Would it conquer the goodness of God? Would it defeat the goodness of God? Never. God's moral goodness is so essential, so foundational. So fundamental, so, so omnipotent, so independent, simple, wise, and sovereign. It cannot be defeated. So even when challenged by the wickedness of Satan and the foolishness of man, the goodness of God is displayed all the more clearly. And the beauty of that goodness shines all the more brightly. The wonderful promise of the covenant of grace in Genesis 3, 15, that through the womb of the woman who had brought sin into the world would come the Savior who would take sin out of the world. Through the womb of the woman who was the means through which wickedness was born in the world, through the same womb, salvation would be born and deliverance and rescue and conquest over all that is evil. The triumph of goodness comes from the womb of the woman, all by sovereign grace. And then he comes. We imagine that period from the, the day when the promise was given to Eve, right through to the day when Mary gave birth to the Christ. Was it thousands of years? wonders as heaven looked on as the angels looked on every single birth of a child perhaps they thought is this the one is this the one is this the one and you trace through the old testament that history of the birth of each child of promise in the line of promise and how God preserves that line of promise. He preserves it through immorality. He preserves it through destruction. He preserves it through hatred, through conflict, through strife. Sometimes the purpose of God through the womb of the woman hangs by the slenderest of thread. But eventually the Christ is born. And this Christ is goodness 
victorious. This Christ is the goodness of God come into this present world that has been infected with evil and wickedness and sin. And he came to win. Make no mistake about it. He came as a warrior to fight against anti-goodness and to conquer every manifestation of it. I want us to spend a few moments looking at how this fight is worked out in Matthew chapter 4, particularly. We thought about this a little yesterday at the graduation. Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Who was first to be tempted by the devil? Not in a wilderness, but in paradise. It was Adam and Eve, wasn't it? The first humanity, the first of the first humanity, the first Adam, tempted of Satan. Now the last Adam, the second Adam, the final Adam, the great Adam. He goes not into a paradise, but into a wilderness. He goes not filled with all the fullness of the fruits of paradise. He goes emptied. Deprived, verse 2, fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And if ever there was a phrase in Scripture of understatement, that phrase at the end of Matthew 4, verse 2 is it, isn't it? Afterward, he was hungry. <laughs> 40 days and 40 nights without Can you even imagine that, guys? No, I can't even imagine that. But Jesus experienced it and then weakened to the weakest weakness of weak humanity, weakened to the point of crumbling under his own weakness. All of hell is unleashed on him. Satan comes and with him all the cohorts of the demons come. It's no mistake, is it? It's no happenstance that right throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus, he meets demon after demon after demon after demon after demon. And we say to ourselves, why isn't this experience ours now? Well, because you're not the son of God. And the demons focused all their forces on this man, this one man. And so the tempter, verse 3, comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. This wasn't just a chance temptation. This wasn't just an idea of Satan as a way of tempting Jesus. This is a reenactment of Genesis 3, isn't it? As Eve is told, reach out your hand and take of the fruit of the tree. And Jesus is told, reach out your hand and take of the stones of the wilderness and turn them into the fruit, turn them into the bread, turn them into the food of life. You're starving to death. Your body is about to give way. You are crumbling under the weight of the consequences of the curse. You're in a wilderness where the thorns and the briars are growing. They're growing all over you. You are completely engulfed. You are about to die. You are hair's breadth away from breathing your last breath as a human being. Take of the stones and turn them into bread. 
And Jesus, he says to Satan, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan, I'm not going to eat anything unless my father wills it. Satan, I'm not going to take any fruit of any tree. I'm not going to take any stone of any ground. I'm not going to use any ounce of any power to do anything that my father does not will. My father is good. His will is good. His purpose is good. I'm here to do his will and to work out his purpose. My meat, my drink, my food, my sustenance, my purpose, my joy, my all in all, my life itself is God. I depend on God for everything. I will not turn this stone into bread unless it be the will of the Father. And I have heard nothing from the Father to say so. In fact, his spirit has led me into the wilderness and starved me for 40 days. And he's done that in his good purpose. Do you see what's happening? Jesus in this very first temptation is conquering where Adam and Eve failed. He's triumphing in the wilderness where they failed in paradise. And the story continues. Goodness is victorious in the second temptation as he refuses even to question the goodness of God. He refuses to put the goodness of God to the test. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Satan quotes scripture at him. And Jesus says, it is written, you shall not test or tempt the Lord your God. You don't need to put the goodness of God to the test. I know he is good. I don't need to put his promises to the test. I know he is faithful. So Satan is sent packing again. And goodness is victorious in the third temptation. As Jesus insists on worshiping and serving the good God, treating God as the greatest good, even though it would cost him everything, because he believed that God's purposes could not not be good. He is goodness. So even though the devil gives him a shortcut, verse 8, to take all the kingdoms of the world and their glory for himself, if only he will worship an idol, Satan. And Jesus says, away with you, Satan. I will not be an idolater, for you shall worship the Lord God, and him only you shall serve. God is everything to me. Trusting in God is everything to me. I know that God is good. I know that my summum bonum, my highest good is God. And you see him there in the wilderness about to die of hunger. Saying to Satan, you can take everything from me. You can deprive me and deny me and trouble me and harass me and distress me. And living in this cursed world can take me to the point where I have nothing left. But I am content because I worship God. And in God, I have all that I need. You see, when goodness fills a man, evil cannot win. When a man is filled with God, there is no space for evil for sin, for darkness, for unbelief, for wickedness. Christ triumphed. And just as we see him in the garden, in the wilderness there in, in chapter 4 of Matthew, 
on his knees, as it were, breathe, almost breathing his last, as it were, right at the beginning of his ministry and deprived of food and deprived of company and deprived of everything that makes life worth living and still trusting in the Father, how do we see him at the end of his life? We see him once again on his knees. We see him once again weakened beyond imagining. We see him once again so deprived, this time not of food, but so deprived of comfort, so deprived of, of peace, so deprived of joy, humanly speaking, so filled with fear as he kneels in Gethsemane under the weight of the burden of the darkness. He knows he is going to have to bear the sins of the world upon his shoulders. He knows he is going to have to go once more into the breach and fight Satan again. And he knows this time he is going to have to fight in death itself. This time he is not going to have to fight as he did in the wilderness, nearly unto death, to the edge of death. Now he is going to have to fight to death and in death and through death. Now, how does a man find his fullness in God in death itself? How does a man find himself able to trust in a God who is killing him? How does a man have a faith that is mighty enough, that is confident enough in God's goodness, that when that very same God plunges him into hell for sins he hasn't committed, he keeps on trusting him? Only in the man who is all goodness. Only in the man who knows that God is all goodness. Only in the man who, when he is deprived of everything that makes a man a man, continues to be all that a man would be because he is trusting in God. That's the triumph of goodness. You see a man in so much pain that he's kneeling and trembling and sweating blood. His body is actually giving way. His blood vessels are bursting. The stress is so intense. And yet he continues to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is the triumph of goodness. And that is why we know that when he went to the cross, goodness triumphed. Trust in God triumphed. He had Psalm 22 in his mind as he went to the cross, didn't he? Please don't misunderstand what is going on when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that whenever anybody in the New Testament uses an Old Testament scripture, the whole passage is intended. Why was Jesus meditating on Psalm 22 on the cross? Yes, because that is what he felt. He felt himself abandoned of God. He felt himself forsaken of God. He was experiencing hell. But how does Psalm 22 continue? Yes, it describes the privations of the cross, every bone out of joint, the bulls surrounding him, the lions opening their mouths and roaring in his face. 
He's poured out by like water. He has dried up like a potsherd. Dogs are surrounding him. He counts his bones. They divide his garments. He cries, verse 19 of Psalm 22, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. Oh, my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. All of this was in the mind of Christ as he died upon that cross. It is why he was meditating on Psalm 22. And what is the very next phrase in Psalm 22? The very next phrase. You have answered me. He knew that God would answer him. Why did he know that God would answer him? By some extra scriptural revelation? No, because his mind was filled with the scriptures. And these scriptures told him that goodness would triumph even on the cross, even as he felt himself deprived of all that makes a man a man. He knew that he was more man than ever because he was trusting in his God. He knew that he would go forth, verse 22 of Psalm 22, to declare the name of his God to his brethren. How did he know that? How did he know that he would come through the cross? How did he know that he would come through the punishment, through the darkness of death, through the horrors of shell? How did he know that he would triumph? How did he know that in the midst of the assembly, he would praise the name of the Lord? How did he know? Because he knew that goodness would triumph. He knew that God could not be defeated. And that brings us to our fourth and final meditation for today. The communication of goodness to me. The communication of goodness to me. You see, we don't just see goodness in Scripture unfolded. We don't just have a definition of goodness. We don't just see goodness victorious through Christ we also know that this very same goodness is ours. It's ours. Why did God create anything? Why did he create humanity? Why did he create you and me? And the answer is because he is good. He did it to manifest in his creation all his goodness. He did it so that the worthiness and the beauty and the glory of his goodness might be displayed. We see it in creation. We sang about this this morning. In creation, God communicates his goodness to us every day. Every day. You know all about the warmth of the sun here, don't you? Every time you feel the warmth of the sun on your skin, it is the goodness of God. Every time you feel the refreshing shower of of water upon you, it is the goodness of God. Every time you, you put cream on your face or on your hands, ladies, and you, and you feel the, the refreshing, rejuvenating experience of that, it is the goodness of God. Every time, as a man, you stand in front of the mirror and, and shave, as some of you do, and you experience the, the freshness of a close shave. It's the goodness of God. Every time a husband and a wife embrace and kiss one another, it is the goodness of God. Every time you take your baby up in your hands and cradle the child, it is the goodness of God. 
Every time as a child you experience the loving compassion of your mother, your father, wiping away the tear from your eye, it is the goodness of God. And every time you lay your head upon the pillow at night and feel the comfort, it is the goodness of God. In fact, every good thing you experience is God communicating his goodness to you. And in his providence, he does the same. God communicates his goodness to us every single day. We're all here this afternoon. And what have we experienced today of God's providence? We've experienced so much good food. We've experienced excellent tea. Haven't drunk it together. We've experienced good fellowship one with another in Christ. We've experienced the joy of hearing his word. We've experienced the wonder of baptism. We've experienced the good confession of those in whom the goodness of God has burst forth and changed their mind and heart and transformed them into the likeness of Christ. We've experienced the joy of, of the broken bread and the poured wine given for us the feast of the new covenant in the Lord. All of this God has providentially planned from all eternity for you, for you, for you. Oh, the goodness of God and the covenant love of God. What covenant love is ours? Because God is good. This covenant love of God that we track right back to before the beginning. Our Bible begins with in the beginning. But elsewhere in Scripture, we find out that before the beginning, before time began, God loved. He loved within himself. He is the perfection of love, the fountain of love, the source of love, the very definition of love. And in love, he chose to love creatures that he would create. You and me. Why does God love you? Does he love you because you're lovely? Sorry, Pole. No. He doesn't love you because you're lovely. He loves you because he is love. And out of his goodness, his love came to you. He loved you before the worlds were made. He loved you before you existed. He loved you before humanity was. He loved you within his being. And becoming a Christian, confessing the good confession in baptism, sharing in the bread and the wine, worshipping God, hearing his voice, fellowshipping around and in his presence. All of this is God's goodness to you. It's a goodness that has found you out. It's a goodness that has sought you. It is a goodness that has called you, a goodness that has saved you, a goodness that has washed away all your sins, a goodness that has redeemed you, a goodness that has guaranteed everlasting joy for you. 
And it's all because of God. Let's think again for a moment about what happened to those four people earlier today. They entered into covenant communion with God. Just think about the statement. They entered into covenant communion with God. God covenanted with them on the basis of their confession of faith in word and then through water. According to his command, they now belong to God. God has sealed them with his covenant seal. And all of that happened because before the worlds were made, he loved those four people. He chose those four people in Christ. He set his goodness upon them. The goodness of covenant love. The covenant of redemption, which becomes the covenant of works, which when broken becomes the covenant of grace, which is then preserved through the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses and the covenant with David and then comes to its fullness in, in the new covenant in Christ, sealed in his blood, ours forever which will one day be consummated when the covenant love of God renews the whole earth and calls us to enjoy him forever. Wonder of wonders. God communicates his goodness to us. He communicates it in creation. He communicates it in providence. He communicates it in redemption. And he communicates it in making us like him. Everything we've said today is wonderful already, isn't it? We feel filled. But we're not yet overflowing. God wants us to overflow. And here's the overflow doctrine. Here's the overflow application. Here's the over and above anything you could ask or think. God is going to make you good. God is going to make you all good. God is going to transform you into a good person. He is not just going to treat you as good. He already does that. In Christ, you are already clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I was so encouraged to hear testimony earlier on that understands the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Praise God. We're all justified. We're all right with God. We're all clothed in that perfect righteousness. It's a free gift at salvation. But here's more. Here is more. Here's the overflow. Not only is he treating you as righteous, he is working his righteousness in you and into you and through you and out of you. And when he's finished with you, you will be all good, completely good. It's already begun. He's already doing good works in you and through you. Again, as we heard in testimony earlier on, we might not yet be what we want to be, what we will be, but we are not what we once were, are we? We know what we were. We loved our sins. We loved our unbelief. We loved our rebellion. We loved wickedness. We loved sin. We loved evil. And that is where we were. Christ has saved us and delivered us and broken the chain that ties us to our commitment to anti-goodness. 
And now we love what is good. Now we want what is good. Now we seek what is good, but not always. Not always. Are you weary of the anti-goodness that still abides within you? Are you weary of the sin that still troubles you and brings misery into your life and in the life of your loved ones, in the lives of those around you and other Christians? We hear about churches that are struggling, pastors who are going to have to leave their congregations, congregations that are not receiving the ministry, congregations that are divided and the story could go on. Sadly, we are not yet all good. Yes, God is working in us and through us for his good pleasure. Yes, God has good works that we are already walk, walking in. Yes, he has begun a good work in us, but it is not yet complete, is it? It's not yet complete. But we, we know from that great text, Philippians 1 verse 6, do I carry on, brother, or do I stop? Philippians 1 verse 6. Listen. We are confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Notice the words. He has begun a what work? A good work. He's begun a good work in you and he will complete it. Isn't that wonderful? He's going to finish what he has begun. And you might say to yourself, but how? How can that be? I'm weighed down with sin. I'm troubled with my own failings. I constantly struggle. I fall into the same sin again and again and again and again. I just can't envisage how I will ever triumph. And what does he go on to say in Philippians 2? He says, he is working in you and through you according to his good pleasure. God's spirit dwells within you and nothing can prevent every Christian becoming all good. Everything in your experience in this life, as we know from Romans 8, 28, 29 and 13, is working together for what? What did I hear you say? It is working together for good. Not for ease, not for comfort, not for plenty, not for eat, trick and be merry, not for temporal wealth, but for good. And good is so much bigger than all those things. What do we say to the prosperity gospelers? Please don't let us say, you people, you're just into nice experiences. We're into being miserable. We be, you believe in a prosperity gospel and we believe in a poverty gospel. <laughs> they believe in a prosperity gospel, which brings you some good here and now, if it could deliver. We believe in a gospel that brings you all good forever and ever. Amen. We believe in a gospel, which means that one day we will be like Jesus. Because that's the promise of 1 John 3, 2, isn't it? Now we are children of God. But it does not yet appear what we shall be. We don't yet know what we shall be. But this we know. When we see him, we will be like him. 
for we shall see him as he is. The day is coming when you will reflect the goodness of the man of goodness completely perfectly. And there will never, from that day on, there will never ever be the possibility of any threat to your total goodness. Out from you will flow all goodness, just as out from Jesus flows all goodness. Who is the man on the throne now? The man who is good, Jesus Christ. You are in him. And when he returns to this earth and sweeps away the curse and renews the earth and makes the whole earth better than it was in the beginning, an Eden through and through, when he finishes what Adam failed to do, he will turn the whole of planet earth into a glorious paradise, an Edenic beauty beyond anything you can conceive. And you know what the most beautiful thing on planet earth will be of all the creatures? You. You, 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 Christian, every one of you will have a beauty that will make the greatest beauties of this age seem as nothing. You will have new eyes that appreciate nothing but pure goodness. You will have a new mouth that speaks nothing but pure goodness. You will have new ears that hear nothing but pure goodness. You'll have a new mind that thinks nothing but pure goodness. You'll have a new body, new legs, new arms, new feet, new everything that will be all good, inherently good, absolutely good, and will do good and love good and be good. And we shall see one another and we shall say, hey, look, look at so-and-so. Aren't they like Jesus? Don't they radiate the goodness of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, our problem as Christians is that we are satisfied with so little there are many problems with the false gospels of this age, but they settle for so little. Do they not? We should not settle until we have what is our inheritance. All the goodness of God channeled through you and me in all its fullness for all eternity on a renewed earth. That is our hope. And here and now, we live with that expectation. We live with that confidence. And there are so many things I could say by way of concluding application, but I have only one. One final application, and it is this. As you look for that final manifestation of the goodness of God, in me, through me, for me, by me. Pray for that. There are so many things we pray for, aren't there? And they're all valid things to pray for. We pray for health and we pray for strength and, and we pray for deliverance and, and we, we pray for safety. And, and we pray for God to be kind to us in our daily lives. And, and we pray for God to show mercy to our children. And, and we pay for people to be saved. And we pray for the growth of the church. And all of these things are good things to pray for. 
But will you pray that you will be like Jesus? Will you pray that your brothers and sisters will radiate the goodness of Jesus? Will you pray that goodness would be so manifest in you here and now that it would conquer evil and overcome non-goodness, anti-goodness? Will you pray that? It's a great prayer to pray. And as we pray that, we set our sights upon the promise that will come one day when you will look in the mirror in the glory of the age to come. Imagine it. You will look in the mirror in the glory of the age to come and everything you see, both physically and spiritually, practically, emotionally, in every aspect of your humanity, all you will see when you look in the mirror is goodness, pure goodness, Christ-likeness, unmitigated. That's our inheritance because God is good and his goodness will triumph in you by his grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Good God, we thank you that you are gracious, merciful, patient, and loving kind towards us, your people. We have given you reason a thousand times to turn away from us, and yet every time your goodness triumphs. As we heard on Friday evening, there is nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth, nothing of the angels, nothing of the demons, nothing of creation in any part that can ever separate us from your love because your love has been set upon us out of your goodness and your goodness cannot be defeated, not even by our sin. We are so thankful. And we are thankful, Lord, that this goodness is working in us and it is working through us and that all things will work together for good because you have promised it in covenant love. So whether in creation or in providence, through Christ by grace, we shall become all good. We look forward to that day, Lord. And we pray that until that day, our every concern may be that the goodness of Christ might be manifest in us and that through us, your goodness would overcome and triumph and win the victory over all that is not good in this, our day and age. So thank you for your goodness to us this day. Receive our praise. Forgive us for all that is not good and make us good like your son is good. We ask by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, let us sing our closing hymn. It's an appropriate hymn of praise and thanks to our good God. Praise the Lord. Ye heavens adore him.
benediction as we close. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.